0: Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and one of my mentors, Dr. Brigitte biggie Ronette. Dr. Ronette went to medical school at the University of Chicago and completed her APCP residency at Johns Hopkins, followed by fellowships at Memorial Sloan Kettering and Johns Hopkins in surgical pathology and then GYN pathology. She is a professor of pathology at Johns Hopkins, as well as the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Gynecological Pathology Consultation Service. She is widely published and edits textbooks and speaks nation and worldwide. And on a personal note, she is one of my teachers. I spent two years across the scope from her learning and listening, and I am so much the better for it. So Dr. Renette is here as a part of a series I'm doing on and pathology, uh, talking to leaders in the field about how they chose this career and what the field looks like now. So Dr. Ronette, or I'll just continue on from here on calling you Biggie, because that's what I call you. How are you? And thanks for joining me.
1: Hey, Natalie, I'm doing great. I appreciate the invitation to participate in this. I'll just point out um, my name causes a lot of trouble. So maybe I should just address that up yes. front here. So the, the official the official first name is Brigitta, which is the, German, the, yes. German, yeah, the German version of Bridget. And um, <laughs> the, ger- the German nickname is Biggie right which wouldn't sound funny in German but sounds right. a little funny in English but uh, everyone calls me that and I'm totally you know wedded to that name it's my identity so you're more than welcome to
0: And has that been for your entire life people have been calling you biggie even since you were a, a little kid?
1: Yeah in fact okay. yeah so so it so it is a German nickname I don't know mm-hmm. how many how many Brigittas in Germany have the name big the nickname Biggie but mm-hmm. that's what my parents told me you know that was a nickname for mm-hmm. for Brigitta, and I had it since the beginning and it just stuck um, It was a yeah. little traumatic when I was young
0: I can imagine. <laughs>
1: so the problem was I was a little on the roly-poly side as a child. So uh, being called Biggie didn't help matters. Didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Not at all. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because, you know, like we've talked about the sound of music is the only time I've, I've heard that name before. If anyone who knows you, that's just great. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us more about yourself aside from the biographical type stuff I've mentioned above? How did you come to work? Where did you come from a scientific family and why did you choose medicine in general?
1: Yeah, sure. So, my father um, was a physician actually, and he was he was a, a, a very you know GP type physician. He had had some initial medical training in Germany. He 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 was Romanian, but he ended up in Germany during the war, during World War II. And mm. he he met my mother in Germany, and they got married at the end of the war. And he had studied medicine in Germany. They then decided to emigrate to the United States. Came over around nineteen forty nine, nineteen fifty. And uh, he had to redo some some training here in the U.S. because I don't think they, they accepted everything that he had done in Germany. So he redid some training, ended up in the Chicago area because uh, I think it was the University of Illinois in Chicago that accepted him. And uh, he had actually studied both, believe it or not, dentistry and medicine while in Germany um, because dentistry was shorter than medicine. He was trying to get a profession under his belt, so to speak, before he could uh-huh. come to the United States. So he actually uh-huh. studied both. When he came to the U S sort of redid some medical training. He still had his dental training and he ended up actually got drafted into the American army during the Korean war, went back to Germany and finished some, some of the medical work. Jeez. And then, yeah, and then, yeah. I know it was, it was a little crazy. Uh, yeah. and then he ended up coming back to the U S and he ended up practicing both medicine and dentistry for
0: his whole professional life. So was actually. he, was he your dentist?
1: He was. When I was growing up, he was my dentist. (laughs) I didn't get much medical care. Fortunately, I didn't need much medical care. I got vaccinations. I think he gave us our vaccinations. And then, you know, occasionally if we needed, you know, an antibiotic or something, but I I really never really saw any other doctors or dentists. So great. Yeah. Yeah. So he practiced both and, you know, he would come home a lot of times later in the evening, you know, we, we would some, we would usually eat dinner ahead of time and then he would eat dinner after when he came home from work later, like after seven o'clock or so. And he would sometimes talk about cases, you know, it, not in any specific terms in terms of, you know, this was pre HIPAA, he wouldn't divulge any information about his patients, but he would talk about some interesting cases that he would have, you know, sort of perplexing things. And this was just general medicine, you know, routine mm-hmm. office Office type stuff. Patients would come in with sort of some perplexing symptoms, and he would talk about that on occasion. And um, you know, trying to discover and figure out things, you know, from a medical point of view. So I I think I got influenced by that, being very interested in you know the the, sort of the mystery of trying to figure out a case is what I got from him from those cases that he would discuss. So I was I was a good student. I was good in school. I was good in you know sciences and math and the environment in the home was very much focused on, you know, get a good education because that's, that will guarantee you, you know, success and and stability for your whole life because they Mm -hmm. had a very, they had a very turbulent upbringing, you know, being in Germany during the war and and post World War II Germany for four to five years, Mm -hmm. you know, things, things were rough. And when they came to the U.S., I think my, my parents were very focused on, you know, give us a good education. And that that's, that's really the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So I did well in school. It was clear that I would, you know, Go to college and then being influenced by him i think i also have an older sister who um six years older and she had already had been in college when i was still you know in i guess sixth grade she went off to college and then mm-hmm. and she ended up going going to medical school but mostly i was influenced by my father i think mm-hmm. and so i decided you know to study i mean studied chemistry in college and you know did all the pre-med courses and then went to medical school and in medical school I was sort of very unformed in terms of what I thought I might want to do. And then as as this sort of went through the, you know, the routines and the various rotations, I realized being actually very much fundamentally an introverted person. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, back then when I was sort of less defined as a person and, you know, had less experiences and, you know, hadn't figured myself out in all kinds of ways. I realized when I was doing rotations that I, I felt sort of ignorant of a lot of things when you talk about how you go into in, in the clinic setting, dealing with patients, you know, one on one. You have all this book learning and, you know, traditional learning, but really the the foundation of knowledge for how to approach patients and deal with them. And then, you know, having an introverted personality, I just was not really comfortable with the, the, the clinical setting of, mm-hmm. of going into a room, you know, room, especially as a, you know, third year medical student or actually yeah. maybe starting fourth year medical between third mm-hmm. and fourth year. I just felt like I was so ignorant of a lot of things. Didn't know how to really think about problems and, and issues. I don't think that was really taught taught to you at that point because it was so early in the process. That I just didn't wasn't comfortable with that. And then and so I decided to do a rotation in surgical pathology at the junction between the third year and the fourth year in medical school. The third year was all the required rotations, and then fourth year was all elective. So at that in between point when you could first take an elective. I decided to do a rotation in surgical pathology and I think that might have been partially motivated by an experience I had on I think one of the later required rotations I did was was my OBGYN rotation and mm-hmm. this is only in retrospect that I that I really sort of realized this may have been a clue as to what I might be interested in and might might eventually be good at. I remember being on a OBGYN rotation and we did some some parts of the rotations we were on sort of 12 hour shifts and I think I was somewhat exhausted, and I remember being in an operating room, probably just holding a retractor because that's about all you you were really qualified (laughs) to do as as a third-year medical student. And and I remember it was a case of I think it was like a middle-aged woman, and uh, she had some ovarian tumor. And Mm -hmm. I think you know I was holding a retractor, and then this big ovarian tumor you know gets removed, and then gets handed off to somebody who gets called into the uh, OR, and um, they hand off the the specimen and. Again, I didn't realize it at the time, but I Later realized I'm actually more interested. I was thinking, I want to know what that thing is.
0: Yeah, I actually did. Yeah, I did the same thing. I remember being on oncologic surgery rotation in medical school and Uh just asking if I could break, scrub, and go to the frozen room. And they looked at me like I was nuts. Uh, And they were like, if you want. And I was like, I want, you know, (laughs) that was my first clue. Yeah. I I think you were probably
1: had more of a sense of things and are more extroverted and were, you know, able to do that. I didn't even think
0: about asking to go follow. (laughs) Well, I think things probably changed over time just yeah saying, yeah like, this, was, people, this was people especially women being able to speak up like that for yes sure. i, I yeah. think
1: that's probably very true so yeah. you know being, being introverted being in the uh, this would have been like when was this? Maybe uh, mid, early mid '80s. This mm, mm-hmm. would have maybe, yeah. maybe like '84, '85. Probably around yeah, around that time. So I didn't really say anything, but I I was remember thinking in my head, you know, I really want to know what that thing is, and I really wasn't that interested in standing here holding, you know, standing in the room holding a <laughs> retractor. It turned out to be a granulosa cell tumor. I learned oh. subsequently. I didn't really think much about that in terms of shaping a potential career choice or subspecialty choice. But then I did a a rotation in surgical pathology and it was the summertime between third and fourth year. I guess it was technically fourth year. And, uh, you know, this was at the University of Chicago and I was in the department there and I was, you know, observing things. And I think I was maybe even allowed to cut some basic things. And there were some very nice residents there and attendings. And, uh, I would sit in on sign outs and, you know, look at some slides and I thought, you know, I think this is something I could really do. It just Mm -hmm. seemed to um, grab me in a way and I felt more comfortable with it, Mm -hmm. which I hadn't felt when they said, you know, here's a, here's a chart and go in this room and now talk. here's a
0: live (laughs) human. Yeah. Yeah. Go figure out the right answer. (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. And I just (laughs) had no foundation to really deal with those kinds of situations. And and so I decided, you know, I think I'm going to pursue pathology. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, my brother-in-law, let's see, this would have been, you know, 85, maybe 1985. My brother-in-law was actually a pathologist here at Hopkins. He he and my sister met in medical school and she was in medical school um, here at Hopkins and they met. And he ended up going into pathology. And so I had the potential to have some influence from a pathologist, but we really didn't talk much during those times. You know, I was totally immersed in medical school. Mm-hmm. And um you know, I was in Chicago. They were in Baltimore, and um, you know, it wasn't like modern days where there's constant texting and all this communication. <laughs> I mean, there we didn't even have cell phones. I didn't know there was. We weren't using computers. There was none of that going yeah, on. Yeah,
0: and a long-distance phone call was like a huge deal that cost a bunch of money. I remember.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so we, we hardly communicated. We were immersed in our own worlds. Mm-hmm. But I remember I remember visiting one time, and I guess. I don't even know if I might have even been in college when I visited. This might have been before medical school. And I remember visiting one time and seeing and he was actually must have been on service on a weekend or whatever day it was that I visited. And he was actually doing an autopsy. And I remember visiting down in the autopsy room mm-hmm. here at Hopkins back then. And, and like I said, I think I was actually still in college at the time. So, mm-hmm. I had no, you know, I hadn't even gone to medical school. I didn't know much about pathology.
0: And I remember he was. But you scared. didn't pass out. So, no, nothing. That was nothing. a good nothing. sign.
1: No, it yeah. didn't bother me. I mean, yeah. it was sort of a weird experience, but I didn't think much of it. And we didn't talk that much about it. But then when I had this experience in medical school where I wasn't really comfortable with clinical settings, and seemed to like the, you know, want to know what was in some mass that came out of somebody. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go into pathology, and I had applied to just a few programs for matching, and I was fortunate enough to actually match at Hopkins. So I moved to Baltimore and, you know, did my training here. General AP first. The AP and CP were very separate in the program back then, and I did Mm -hmm. three years of AP and then ended up doing the the fellowships that you mentioned, went to Memorial for a year, came back to Hopkins to do the search path fellowship, uh, you know, where you independently sign out. And then, um,
0: then so was there a GYN pathology fellowship at Hopkins back then, or were you a search path fellow?
1: Yeah, so I was a search path fellow, the the SP assistant job, um, used mm-hmm. to be called chief resident. It was a combination of chief resident and surgical pathology sign out, six months of signing out, you know, just like the SP assistants do right now.
0: Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But then
1: we also signed out autopsies with residents and we did yeah. cover conferences and stuff. It was six months of one and six months of the other part.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was, you know, a pretty intense, good experience. And then after that, if you wanted to do lab medicine, you would do lab medicine, you would do CP for... Mm for two years after that it was like mm. a separate part and I wasn't like sure seven
0: years that's that's a lot
1: yeah it's, it's <laughs> oh, yeah it's a lot and then it got longer yeah. because I yeah. then did the GYN path fellowship but yeah, so yeah. In, in the meantime I, I did all that AP five years of AP very general, didn't have any clue about subspecialization at all. Uh-huh. I didn't know what kind of job I was going to do. And I decided, well, I should do CP you know, rotations uh, because I thought I would just get a job, go into practice somewhere and do APCP, like, you know, the usual thing. And so I did the CP and it was two full years at that time. During that time that I sort of was toying around with the idea of getting some subspecialty training because I felt like, you know, that would help in some way. And, and this was, you know, back in, this would have been ninety early 90s, nineteen ninety. Was it very common for people to have sub-specialized training at that time? Um, not not so much. I mean, it wasn't like everyone was doing fellowships left not and right. Not like it left. is
0: now. No, yeah.
1: was, I think yeah. it was very different, actually. Some yeah. people definitely did fellowships. Some people who were very academically oriented went into labs and did postdocs. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just did APCP and went and got jobs, or some people even, they got jobs without any specialty fellowships. You know, there are, there are famous uh, pathologists here at Hopkins who did you know, four years or five years of AP, no CP, no special fellowship other than surgical pathology, general surgical pathology. And then they came on the faculty and ended up getting sort of into a particular area while on the job as faculty right. mm-hmm. without any fellowships because there weren't that many fellowships. Back right. Then. So mm-hmm. there was a GYN Path Fellowship here for a little while, a number of years. I think Dr. Kerman had come here somewhere eight, 1989, 1990. He came here the year I went to Memorial. So he came to Hopkins the year i was gone and then mm-hmm. when i came back he was here as the gyn you know to Lynn professor of gyn pathology and he came with a fellow and then he was having you know one new fellow every year for two years and so i went and uh, spoke to him sometime during my lab medicine rotations and said you know i'm thinking about Maybe getting some, you know, subspecialty training. I only had two months of GYN pathology as a resident because that's all we had. It was separate from SP. I only had two months. I felt like I didn't know a lot about it. I had done Mm -hmm. one rotation at the AFIP way back then, like I think it was 1989. Mm -hmm. We had some elective time. And I did a rotation at the AFIP, and that was when Norris and Tavasoli were there, which was Mm. an interesting experience, (laughs) I can say. So I I went to the AFIP for a one-month rotation and, Uh you know, saw a lot of consult cases there, previewed them, and then they would get, you know, signed out with the attendings. And it was Norris and Tavasoli, and there were a couple other people who were on faculty there. That was was back in 89. And then when I came back and then did the lab medicine, and then I talked to Dr. Kerman and said, you know, I think I might want to do this. And he was like, okay, sure, you know, and he, he, you know, he sort of like was so casual and unofficial, like, okay, sure, you can be the fellow, like, I guess, there weren't <laughs> any, I guess there weren't any other applicants necessarily at the time. And he knew I had oh, done man. the surgical pathology year at Hopkins, which he knew meant that mm-hmm. I had signed out independently for six right. months, you know, right. So sort of, uh, I was tried and tested and had passed the test, I guess. So, so I came on as a GYN path fellow and back then it was always a two year program back then. So you did two years
0: so at this yeah. point you're you're racking up. Let me count like yeah. uh, five plus two plus two plus nine. So nine years of training. At so that when I yeah, yeah when I
1: finished GYM pathology I'd actually mm. done nine years. So it was very <laughs> in, inefficient training.
0: No, it, I mean look at you. It worked. Yeah. Well,
1: I mean it, it it was inefficient in that how much time it took. In, but obviously the fellowship year at Memorial, the SP year at Hopkins, and then the two years of GYM pathology. Those were the the, the critical. Mm -hmm. Years when I got, you know, real experience signing out independently and then, you know, develop a subspecialty, a little bit of subspecialty expertise, which is kind of funny to think about because, you know, after those two years of GYM Path Fellowship, you would think, oh, you know, you'd be so experienced. But I've learned so much since then, actually, you know, (laughs) almost I mean, way more since then than I did during those two years, even though I learned a lot during those two years.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking as someone who did the two year fellowship, yeah. I can say I think what it does is it teaches you to know when you don't know. Does that make sense? Yes, and absolutely. To, to know when you need to ask for help.
1: Yes. And I'm, I'm continuing <laughs> yeah. to to learn to learn what I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I'm continuing mm-hmm. to ask for help because yeah. things have gotten way more complicated, you know. hmm. Um, mm hmm the yes. amount of the amount of ancillary tests that we have immuno stains now molecular assays mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the refinement of sorting out of tumors that we used to just call something on H E that we thought mm-hmm. was right but later turns out to be there's all these subcategories of lesions. exactly
0: mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm.
1: life is way more complicated even within the area of just and pathology
0: i agree uh, so i tried to look at your your publication record for this podcast it's impossible to really go through the whole thing it's long it's it's a Rich list, but it seems like you at least started your publications with an investigation into pseudomyxoma peritonei and mucinous tumors of the ovary. Um, which, having been your fellow, I know that people are still sending you this case. Yes. And you uh, were part of this frame shift in finding that many of these tumors that were being attributed to the ovary were in fact coming from the GI tract. So if you could rewind and tell me the story about how that came about, what was that process like and how was it like getting started in research?
1: Yeah, so up to that point, up to the time when I did the GYM Path Fellowship, I had very little experience with any kind of you know research activities. The, the training um, was pretty intense. There wasn't a lot of time to do work. And also I have to say, I wasn't really being guided or mentored in any way that somebody was saying, oh, some ideas for projects, you know, what what do you think about this? Or trying to to really influence me to to consider pursuing some stuff, you know, since I I had no exposure to it really before. And that wasn't really happening. Again, things were very busy. But then when I went into the fellowship, it was sort of expected that, you know, you would try to work on some kind of project. So Mm -hmm. there there was a prior fellow that had been Given this set of cases that came from Washington Hospital Center, where this one surgeon who did all these cases, um, a lot of cases of pseudomyxoma peritonei he had been working on, and these cases, somehow through a connection with Kerman, they said, oh, let's look at all these cases of so-called pseudomyxoma peritonei. And Mm -hmm. um, a prior fellow had had these cases and then I think didn't have the ability to finish that during their time in the fellowship. So it got, a, it got handed off to me and said, oh, why don't you look at these cases? And in particular, we have a bunch of cases where there's women uh, here and they have ovarian tumors and just look at the slides and like, see what you think. That's what Carmen said to me. You know, just I can got,
0: I can hear the conversation. Yeah, very
1: casual, very yeah. you know, informal. So I got handed, you know, one of these little, mm-hmm. you know, cardboard trays with all these little mm-hmm. stacks of slides with little tickets, keeping them mm-hmm. separated and handed these cases and, um, uh, so why just take a look at them so i'm like okay i have really no idea what i'm really doing here but i just (laughs) i'll
0: go look at them yeah thank you
1: (laughs) you and and it was er early in the fellowship i didn't have i hadn't seen lots of ovarian mucins tumors but i had you know really good fundamental training between the two fellowships and you know all the other ap rotations so so just coming from the point of view of a generalist with really fundamental extensive training in morphology i started looking at these cases and As I was going through them, I'm like, well, this doesn't really look like an ovarian tumor, you know? And Mm -hmm. and then look at another case, I'm like, well, this doesn't really look, you know, it looks like it's metastatic in here. It looks like something, you know, it doesn't look right for the- What
0: about it? Was it the infiltration pattern? Was it the cytologic features? Was it just all of that together?
1: Yeah, you know, it was a combination of things. And and in Mm -hmm. fact, as I went through all the cases, I noticed a couple of things. Number one, a lot of things didn't look like they were really ovarian. And Mm -hmm. there were sort of two major types of things I was seeing, to to put Mm -hmm. it in sort of simple terms. I was seeing these very uh, bland mucinous tumors, the the low-grade mucinous tumors, as we've now, you know, come Mm -hmm. to call them. Mm -hmm. And then I was seeing other things that looked carcinomatous, just general Mm -hmm. pathology rules of morphology. And you say, these look bland, this undulating bland mucinous epithelium. And then there were these other ones that were obvious carcinomas,
0: Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. i went
1: through all these cases and and started sort of grouping them categorizing them or, or you know splitting them off into groups and then i was also looking at all the material that was like when primary tumors were available on these cases and trying to figure out well if there's something in the appendix or the colon because there were some cases that were actually colon cancers mm-hmm, a lot of them were mm-hmm. appendiceal tumors there were some colon cancers and and um, trying to figure out well are, is there a primary tumor in the gi tract for cases that had it and then what does he, what do the ovaries look like in the cases in women and so I ended up sort of doing two, two projects came out of that. One was looking at the ovarian tumors in women. Then I ended mm-hmm. up looking at all the cases, which included men and women with all these potential GI tumors. Mm-hmm. And and that was the second paper that came out. The first paper focused on pseudomyxoma peritonei in women and mm-hmm. said, you know, look, most of these tumors don't look like primary ovarian mucinous tumors. Some mm-hmm. of them can have overlapping features. And we didn't even have immunos at that time that we were doing those, you know, using CK7, CK20 it was just just barely getting started at that time, I think. So it was based on morphology. We decided that almost all the cases looked like they didn't belong in the ovary, didn't come from the ovary. And a couple we had called like equivocal. And even in the end with immunos, those ended up getting resolved. So there was like nothing that I could blame on the ovary in the whole set. And then we and followed up so- and did, did um the cases, in mm-hmm. everybody and decided, mm-hmm. you know, there were all these GI tumors that were giving rise to, mm-hmm. to the, to the, to the cases.
0: So you didn't have the appendix on a lot of them but even though that ended up being the origin of the tumor because they just didn't look at it at the time of surgery
1: no a lot of them had an appendix actually Mm -hmm. and so because the whole issue still even though people had an appendix with a tumor Mm -hmm. in it Mm -hmm. the ovaries didn't look they looked like borderline mucus tumors sort Mm -hmm. of and Mm -hmm. so people kept saying well they're independent synchronous tumors you know like Uh. issues issues that apply to endometrium and and you know ovary also They were like, oh, they're synchronous independent tumors because neither one looks invasive. They both look low grade or benign or whatever. You know, sometimes the ovaries were even called cystadenomas, you know. So they were were thought to be synchronous independent ones because even though they looked very similar. So even in the face of an appendiceal tumor, they were assessed as being, you know, more likely independent because like the appendix sometimes wasn't clearly ruptured.
0: Or it looked too innocent, sort of, to yeah, be giving yeah. rise to something else. Yeah, yeah. or the
1: ovary—you okay. know—the tumor was in the ovary, not stuck on the ovary. Like some cases, there'd be little stuff just stuck on the surface of the ovary. Be like, well, that's not an ovarian tumor; that's easy. But lots mm-hmm. of them were crawling around in the ovary. Mm -hmm. and they they kind of simulated borderline tumors or cystadenomas and so they they often got interpreted as independent there were no immunos done at the time and you know looking at them they just had some different features you know they had these haphazard patterns there was lots of dissecting mucin there was less epithelium they didn't have the same kind of architecture they were sometimes very hypermucinous, and and they just looked different from the conventional you know borderline atypical proliferative mucinous tumors so Based on morphology, we made an argument that they that they were probably um, coming from the appendix, and then we subsequently did an immunostudy that showed evidence, and then we subsequently did a molecular study that showed mm-hmm. evidence supporting that. And, and that's kind of how it just, you know, happened, like just sort of looking at a bunch of cases with no preconceived notions, you know, I was sort of unbiased as a generalist without any right. experience.
0: Do you think that you would have come to that conclusion had you not done so many years of general surgical pathology?
1: I think the morphologic skills to look at this, you know, the way I did and see the differences, I think, you know, any any good basic AP training mm-hmm. would have enabled you to probably start seeing these things. Mm-hmm. But I had a, a lot of exposure with them um, to, you know, fellowship years and yeah. the rigorous morphologic kind of basis. And I think that helped, you know, having, having an eye for things, being mm-hmm. good at the morphology, I think yeah. is, a, is a skill that I have. And, and it enabled me to really look at these critically and say, based on sort of fundamental principles, there's two different groups of tumors here. There's a low grade and a carcinomatous and the things in the ovary they some of them simulate primary varying tumors, but there's something not quite right about them.
0: Well, it's interesting that it was handed to you as a "Can you take this over? Because I'm on my way out the door" kind of thing, and then turned it into uh, much more. So that's amazing. So you have done a lot of work on cervical cancer and its precursors. Can you talk about your experiences working cervical pathology and what that's been like?
1: Yeah. So I guess the one of the more interesting things I've been involved. Well, there's actually probably two things that are interesting. Interesting with regard to cervix. One mm-hmm. is. One is, I mean, there's a bit of a drudgery associated with this one thing, but it has to do with reading thousands of biopsies that are Mm -hmm. part of the Merck HPV vaccine trial work. This has been going on. I got involved in that, I think it was around 2000, could have been the end of 1999, but I think it was around 2000 where there was a pathology panel created to read all the biopsies that would be coming from this, these trials you know, to get an HPV vaccine. And it was because of the connection with Dr. Kerman and Mark Stoller was involved, Alex Frenzy, and then another colleague, Mark Sherman, had been involved, but he had been at Hopkins um, and then had left. And I think he had other commitments where, where he was at the NIH. And then he was not involved anymore in reading that. And they recruited me to be the fourth pathologist to be involved in reading all these cervical biopsies for the HPV vaccine trials. So it started around 2000 and uh, really we had no idea how how much this there would be and how long it would go on. But I'm actually still reading biopsies from those trials. During the initial phases, you know, between 2000 and maybe it was 2006, I think, when the first version got approved, we, we read thousands of biopsies and then since then obviously it's it's gone on for a number of years because there was the first version and then Mm -hmm. the second version and then there's all this follow-up on all the trials so there were times when i was reading you know every two weeks i was reading 200 to 400 slides Uh of cervical biopsies during the (laughs) peak of this in the last handful of years it's it's dropped off tremendously and mm-hmm. so I only get occasional cases every now and then. So it's it's way diminished because this is just the, the, the sort of tail end of follow up on cases. But for a while there again it was hundreds of cases every couple of weeks. And you were still
0: doing that work when I was there in 2012. So I know, y- Yes, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yes, boxes and boxes. And
1: I was involved in another, another work related to reading lots of cervical biopsies that overlapped in that time frame, that had, had to do with these HPV related studies that come out of um, New Mexico, Cosette Wheeler's group, where I got, you know, recruited to be involved in, in reading cases for, for a variety of projects. And so I was getting boxes of slides from that that those projects and Merck slides. <laughs> so, so there were times when I would have just two to four boxes. These are hundred slide boxes from Merck. And then, you know, a couple of boxes or more from the New Mexico projects. And I would have just these boxes of cervical slides. And I had one of the, a single headed microscope that I had hauled home um, during some of this time. And I would- Yeah, I was gonna say, and a day job. Not yes, to mention. yes, <laughs> yes. So, so I would, I would haul boxes home with me and read them at a, mm-hmm. at a counter with a, mm-hmm. a microscope in my house sometimes and sequester mm-hmm. myself there. Because if I tried to read them here at work, it would be, I'd get interrupted a lot. So reading those biopsies, you know, in, in a variety of projects have been very interesting because you learn interesting things when you yeah. you have to read cases to achieve consensus, right? So right. several pathologists, all, you know, experienced GYN pathologists with interest in cervical pathology, and we'd be reading these biopsies, and then sometimes we would get together to do... Um, some uh, consensus reviews and meetings in person at a multi-headed microscope because it's a, you know, I have to put this in perspective. Most cases would get consensus with two reads, right. but right. sometimes it would take three reads because, you know, there are issues in diagnostic thresholds and reproducibility. Yes,
0: uh, yes, every, yes.
1: <laughs> every, every now and then, you know, we'd have this little subset of cases uh-huh. for which there was no consensus after four pathologists read the biopsy.
0: Even with immunohistochemical staining, right? No, no, no no, to, no, no
1: immunos. This, no was immunos. All, okay.
0: this was all done on H&E. There were no ancillary oh. techniques at all. We oh. didn't We didn't have any information. Yeah, no. add that to the list of things I wish could have been recorded in real time. Yeah. I want to I see those cases yeah. and listen to it, what you four were saying. It, yeah. it was yeah. highly entertaining. The other thing that
1: has been interesting to work on over time, having to do with cervix, as you're probably well aware from having been a fellow with us is uh, mm-hmm. the whole issue of these ovarian tumors that we've interpreted as metastatic endocervical adenocarcinomas.
0: Yes, this um, gets a lot of attention. Yeah, yes, that's been to
1: very yeah. interesting to, to mm-hmm. see how that developed because um, the problem being that the cervical lesions, sometimes when cervical lesions have been discovered in these cases, they have been, mm-hmm. you know, looking like AIS or questionably invasive. Mm -hmm. And yet here you're trying to say that an ovarian tumor is a metastasis from this thing in the cervix that you can barely recognize as invasive, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there
1: was a lot of uh, skepticism on that issue. It started with one case that I had encountered when I was on the faculty, but early on, I think it was around 2000. um, And uh, this ovarian tumor that had come out as a consult case to us. And it just struck me as a little funny. It had borderline type growth pattern, but it kind of reminded me um, when I was looking at cytologic features in the case, it reminded me of some endocervical adenocarcinomas that I had been looking at at the same time for another project. Mm. And I was so struck by it that I said, gosh, you know, this is really funny looking. And the architecture is not clearly invasive at all, but there's these certain cytologic features and it just looks like these endocervical adenocarcinomas. Somebody had done some immunostains. I think the original pathologist had done some immunostains. And um, back then, we weren't even yet let using P16. We didn't have it in our lab. But someone had done hormone receptors and, and you know, ERPR on the case, and it was totally negative. And mm. I thought, you know, that's actually characteristic of endocervical adenocarcinoma of HPV related right. type. They classically have no ERPR. They and have. it would be
0: kind of unusual in a really, you know, gland-forming yeah. ovarian tumor. Yes, yeah. yes,
1: because it looked yeah. kind of endometrioid, but it mm-hmm. had some subtle mucinous features, and but mm-hmm. more endomet, kind of endometrioid-like. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is really odd, you know, so then we decided to pursue it some and, and decided to do HPV in situ hybridization, because at that time we actually didn't have a P16 in our lab, so... Mm-hmm. So we did that and lo and behold, the reaction looked like it was positive. You know, it was a DNA in situ hybridization that we had back then. And there was dot like reactivity. And I remember showing the case of Dr. Kerman, he had been away and then he came back and I said, you know, I'm really, I'm really thinking this could be, you know, a static endocervical adeno. He he thought it looked borderline like, and I had a hard Mm -hmm. time convincing him. And he Mm -hmm. goes, well, you know, does she have any cervical disease? And I said, well not that we know of. We said, well, that would be so unusual. And so we raised the question with the contributor and said, you know, maybe, you know, there's this potential reactivity for HPV. Maybe her cervix should be evaluated. She had no known cervical disease. Mm -hmm. And she actually presented, this had presented as a virilizing mass during pregnancy.
0: Oh, for heaven's sake. Yeah.
1: And it was a large unilateral ovarian tumor. And so (sighs) we told them to investigate. They did a a leap or a cone of the cervix. She had this, this plaque-like AIS lesion, and architecturally looked like AIS, but I think it might have been subtly invasive because it actually went up into the lower uterine segment a little bit. It had some like mm-hmm. little focal cribriformy growth, but it was really, you know, most people would have probably called it just extensive AIS. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been subtle invasion, and that case got us started. In that mm-hmm. we wrote it up as a case report with the, the contributing, I think it was gyne- gynecologic oncologist wanted to write it up. So we wrote mm-hmm. it up. And then, you know, c- console cases come in over time and slowly you start seeing more things like this. And then we ended up putting a, a series together of maybe 10 cases where some of them had an endocervical lesion and then an ovarian tumor. And again, like the story with the appendix and the ovary and the pseudomexoma cases, there would be an endocervical lesion and there'd be an ovarian lesion, but the ovarian tumor would look borderline like and not be obviously metastatic, not even obviously carcinomatous. Mm -hmm. And then the question was, is this an independent tumor? And this is the same story all over again, trying to, you know, work them up in some way and showing that, you know, by some technique, immuno or HPV in situ, that these are, not ovarian tumors, independent ovarian tumors of mucinous or endometrioid type. They're actually coming from the cervix, even if the cervix is not clearly invasive and has an AIS-like pattern. We collected a bunch of cases, like I said, did one series, and then I kept collecting them. We kept encountering things. And, you know, occasionally it would be presenting as an ovarian mass with no known cervical lesion. Sometimes there would be a cervical lesion that was questionably invasive or couldn't be recognized invasive. Sometimes the cervical tumor would actually be overtly invasive and still there was a question about whether the ovary was independent or metastatic. Right, right. And, and yeah. so that was a very interesting experience about things in the ovary that just aren't ovarian.
0: Yeah, that you must question everything and That's a great, that's another great story. It's like Biggie, the detective (laughs) apologist.
1: Yeah. So yeah, Yeah. I I guess that might be part of it, you know, is like trying to figure out these things that somehow something doesn't feel quite right about it. And you may or may not be able to put your finger on exactly what it is. Yeah. But you investigate it and see if you can figure something out.
0: Yeah, and it's like uh, I I tell uh, residents that when they're getting ready to go into the world, you know, if your spidey sense is tingling, you should listen, yes, you know, exactly. because there's probably a reason why you don't feel comfortable hitting the sign out button. And it's always okay to ask for help. Yeah. Everyone does it, even people in academics show each other cases. So yes. nobody expects you to know everything, and and you have to always be questioning it. It seems have a, a wide. Uh, Bunch of papers on gestational trophoblastic disease and molar pregnancy, and do you want to talk a little bit about how that came to be? How, how you started becoming interested in that?
1: Yeah, sure, I can do that. So I guess the initial encounter happened again. It was it was very early on in my time on the faculty. It was shortly after being a fellow, in fact, it might have been just I think I think it was the first year in mm-hmm. as a faculty member because I had a my colleague with whom a, a co fellow of mine who was a year behind me, had a case where, so she would have been a fellow, a second year fellow, and then I must have been first year on faculty. And uh, there was one case that was, you know, products of conception specimen that was, I guess, somewhat funny looking. And uh, I think it got shown around. I, I, I hadn't seen the case, but um, I think it got shown around and got interpreted as a, as a partial high partial mole. And then uh, I think the, there was no information provided with the case. It just came with, you know, pathology, sit. Sheet saying products of conception.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I think it looked funny and it got shown, it got interpreted as a partial hydatidiform mole and signed out. And then the clinician called and was, you know, complaining about the diagnosis because they had information, I guess probably they had a karyotype and said it was a trisomy. There was a trisomy mm-hmm. and they just sent the tissue because, you know, tissue comes to pathology. But they didn't write any of that anywhere and we didn't have all these electronic, you know, access to all these electronic records readily. And if you didn't write it on the pathology sheet, you wouldn't know. And and there was a trisomy, I think it was a trisomy 18. And, you know, they said it can't be a partial mole because it's a trisomy 18. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so there was another faculty member who was interested, was like the PEDS path person. So she had, uh, you know, interest in pediatric pathology and some occasional, uh, some other techniques that were available. And that got me to sort of learn about the fact that funny-looking villi can simulate a partial mole, but there might be a trisomy or some other genetic aberration. And there could be overlap between trisomies and partial moles or misinterpretation, potentially. I think she had, she had some experience or exposure to that and had pointed that out. And we had hardly any ancillary techniques for dealing with POC specimens at that time. I mean, we, certainly didn't have, we didn't have P57. We didn't have... Mm-hmm we never did any kind of flow or you know ploidy mm-hmm. analysis to get at mm-hmm. that so it was all morphology and it was whatever you know any expert person said is kind of what you went by right so then a couple of years later a there was a visiting fellow from mm-hmm. singapore and this idea came up about you know looking at cases where they were questionably partial molar versus funny looking villi non molar And the Pete's path person, I think, had the ability to do some kind of DNA by image analysis. And so there was a project that got done where we looked at these cases that were partial mole versus funny looking villi where we maybe knew there was trisomy and did Mm -hmm. some kind of a consensus review, you know, three pathologists versus individual pathologists and diagnosis by consensus and diagnosis looking at DNA content, whether they were triploid or not without Mm. any specifics about what kind of triploidy. This was the late 90s, so we didn't have the genotyping available. We didn't have, you know, a lot of these techniques. So um, we did a little project on that and and showed that, you know, by morphology, deciding whether something was non-molar, funny-looking villi, maybe trisomy versus partial mole, was almost like tossing a coin. Mm. And if you looked at DNA content or even did a consensus review, consensus got much better. (laughs) <laughs> but and then looking at the DNA content, and if you said triploidy equals partial mole, which we know is not always 100% true, but mm-hmm. in a funny looking villi-, villi case, triploidy is highly incriminating for partial mole. So that yeah. was the first project that, that came out that got me, you know, aware of these problems with morphology, diagnostic reproducibility with high for moles. That was late 90s. And then, you know, many years went by, and uh, people were talking about P57 some. We didn't have it here we would get cases and we would you know, look and struggle and we didn't have any other way to get at ploidy. And the, you know, we had fish that was only for research purposes. It wasn't available in any the, in the, in the molecular lab. So we couldn't really do anything other than morphology. And it was getting aggravating because we knew that there were problems with morphology. It didn't matter if you were an expert in GY and pathology, there were issues. So right. I talked with some people in the molecular lab and then one of my colleagues here as well, a connection with the immuno lab. And we decided we should try and work on getting some ancillary testing that could deal with the mole issue. And so the
0: mole issue, yeah, the yeah. mole issue. Yeah. It's so, just there all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So um, here in here in our you know clinical GYN pathology side, my colleague, you know, Russell Vang got the immunolab involved in validating P57, you know, taking cases and validating it. And then at that time um, in the molecular lab, my colleague Kathy Murphy was there mm-hmm. and we took, you know, this existing assay. She worked worked on it to get it refined for interpretation purposes for dealing with moles, basically identity testing, microsatellite mm-hmm. analysis, and, and adapting it to molar specimens because you're mm-hmm. looking at two different individuals. You know, you're looking at villus tissue of the fetus and decidual tissue of the mother and and trying to figure out the genetics, which you can very right. specifically do. Right. So, so we sort of take a bunch of cases, validated all that testing, because of a desire to make a better diagnosis, and and you know acknowledge that you know even gyn experts would be making diagnosis on morphology, which was not always right.
0: Right, and and all of the outcome data and all of the, you know textbooks and everything, still mostly is based on those studies, right? Not the ones with genotyping? Uh, uh, yeah, so yeah. certainly
1: yeah. the traditional literature, you know, while, yeah. while many cases are likely correctly classified, the more classic right. the morphology, there, there are contaminants in there, right? There's going to be yeah. cases Just that are were- a little
0: muddy. Yeah, yes, exactly. yes, yes, yes. Yeah.
1: There are some imperfections. And so some of yeah. that data has imperfections. And so I think moving forward, now that we've been doing this for more than 10 years, anything you, you say about any molar cases and their risk for GTD or any subsequent um, tumors that might arise I think you have to analyze them genetically and prove what they really are to yes. be able to say what's happening subsequently in those cases. So again, it was a desire to, you know, make really the best possible diagnoses with ancillary techniques that was involved in the mole thing. And similar things apply to to the other cases too. You know, using immuno and the pseudomyxoma cases, and then molecular using immunos yeah. and in situ hybridization for the endocervical adenos, and then using these other techniques, PT seven genotyping for the moles to really make the best possible diagnosis. And realize that you have to take the morphology in conjunction with these tests, and yeah. weigh all the data, and then figure out what the what really the best and hopefully truthful answer is.
0: Yeah, and also I think it's important two things that you're saying is collaboration. You were reaching out to non-pathologists, immunohistochemical lab staff, the scientists who do that, also the molecular folks. Certainly at a place like Hopkins, you can find people like that, which is so important, but also reaching out for new techniques and not just the light microscope, you know, and realizing that those kinds of things can be done in conjunction is so important. And and also realizing that sometimes you have to be the one to go do that and that people will not always approach you. I think it's important to hear from someone who's so successful like you to hear that you were going out and you were doing, instigating all these things. So
1: yeah. So so you make very good points there because this clearly, uh, you know, has been a team effort. I mean, the mold workout was totally a team effort. It required, you know, two different laboratories, you know, multiple people with different kinds of expertise. And to this day, that's how it's done. You know, it's, it's multimodal and, um, you know, but, but the willingness of colleagues to try and, you know, figure out, you know, existing tests or even modified tests to to get us really good techniques to to get really good diagnoses. Yeah, it was critical. And I'm obviously, you know, indebted to and grateful to the fact that I'm in in a place where I have access to this and I have, you know, really good colleagues who have enabled this. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. none of this would have happened. And and, you know, mm-hmm. also the, the good training, right, the fundamental training that I got mm-hmm. um, in my fellowship, you know, uh, in the prior years, too, the, all the fellowships, the general search path training and then my GYN path training, being around really good people with really good skills at morphology as a foundation.
0: And mm-hmm. then yeah.
1: taking that and building on that, you know, because the morphology only gets you so far, but yeah. learning from really good morphologists, critical thinkers, and then having, yeah. you know, colleagues with um, additional skills and ancillary techniques and putting that all together is totally critical. And, you know, if it hadn't been for all those combinations of things, none of this would have happened.
0: Yeah. And and knowing you, your desire to, I I don't want to say be right, because that sounds so um, simplistic and it's your desire to get the best answer is paramount. And the idea that you would look at the available methods and say, this isn't enough. I want, I want to do better is it's an important thing, not only in being a scientist, but also in being a physician and wanting to do the best thing for your patients. So it's lovely. Now I'm going to shift slightly and talk about being an editor of a textbook, which I am biased, but Blaustein's Pathology of the Female Genital Tract is actually on my desk right now. It's my reference book. No matter how many times I read it, I always find something new. For those of us who have never edited a textbook can you talk a bit about what that process involves and what you like about it and what you could live without
1: (laughs) i can try to do that a little bit so (laughs) i was given obviously this opportunity because of where i am and having worked Mm -hmm. with dr kerman who who edited for many years and is obviously quite an amazing editor. We had, you know, it sort of went through a transition phase where my colleague, Dr. Laura Hedrick Ellenson, who used to be here with whom I trained here actually um, before she Mm -hmm. went, went to Cornell and now she's at Memorial actually. But we, she and I had the opportunity to get involved in this as a kind of a potentially like, you know, handing off the baton transitional process from Mm Kermit being the sole editor to getting you know, multiple people involved because we knew eventually he would retire. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the future of the textbook would lie in the hands of those who inherited that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So the previous edition was done with three editors. And then the most recent edition that obviously just came out in the last half year or so, I guess, or or a little earlier, end of maybe September 2019, I think is the official date where the three of us were involved in editing. I think, you know, having experienced even doing just a portion of the editing as part of a team, it's a daunting task. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would be able to do it by myself. You know, I think, I mean, for, you know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big comprehensive textbook. I mean, you know, it would be doable, but I'm not sure I'd be able to, given trying to, you know, sign out counsel cases. Have a day job.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and, you know,
1: and not be working all the time. I think it'd be a daunting task. Obviously, many people do it and they're quite successful at it. But for me personally, I'm not sure I could really handle it by myself. And I think, again, this team approach Mm -hmm. and getting feedback from colleagues and different perspectives different levels of experience. It's just so, so valuable for, for framing things um, and guiding you in, in how you do something. And issues uh, issues that might come up, bouncing off um, ideas off of your colleagues as you're doing a project like this, I think is really valuable. So I think the team approach, really the the, the bulk of the work though, it lies with the authors, right? You have, you put this in perspective, the authors who write the chapters, it's an enormous amount of work, even just one chapter, you know, because there's so much information, there's all these entities, all these references, all these things you have to synthesize,
0: digest, filter. And and carve down. So every chapter isn't the length of a book. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So, so the authors, you know, deserve really so much of the credit because that, that work is tremendous and you know so all these chapters you know written by all these people all these contributors just absolutely excellent work and then it's you know much easier i think to edit something than to create it Mm -hmm. clearly i mean editing has its own challenges depending on how you're trying to the style of something or how you're trying to blend things or whatever or form consistencies from chapter to chapter but the that that part that that wasn't really that difficult because the contributions were so excellent so that's the the first thing is, you know, you get really good people to be your contributors. They do this fantastic work. And then, you know, editing is, te- you know, it's tedious and you have to have uh, patience, I guess, for
0: it. I just, I picture it as a lot of almost like team management or like sort of, corralling of people, ideas, deadlines, you know, making sure things fit together. It's almost like being part of the corporate world or something. Or, yeah, yeah there,
1: there is some, yeah. As- yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. There is some aspect of that because, you know, you are trying to manage people who have different ways of working, different timelines. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. people do things very quickly. Some people, they they they're, they tend to be slower to do things. They, they mm-hmm. generate a great product, but it can take them a long time to do it um, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. just
1: because of the way they work and you know, everyone works differently. But editing and and dealing with uh, language issues that might get introduced, style issues, just little errors that might get into the system. Those are these little things that you have to pay attention to. That's sort of the tedious part, making sure everything is turning out right, organized the right way, that figures are in the right places and legends are correct and all these kinds of things. There's a lot of vigilance that goes into it.
0: That's a Um, good word. Vigilance, persistence, diligence. (laughs) Well, it's good that you do it as a team then. It sounds at least... um, I
1: I think it's the the, the much more manageable
0: way to do it. Yeah. Especially the level to which I know you hold yourself. So I think I could guess the answer to this question, having spent two years as your fellow, but for people who are listening, would you tell us a little bit about your typical workday as a GYN (laughs) pathologist at a large referral center?
1: So in in more recent times, since I'm focused essentially exclusively on the consultation work here rather than the routine service, a typical day for me when I'm on service is that I'll be looking at consult cases pretty much the whole morning, you know, Mm -hmm. know, let's say between nine and noon or nine and one, three to four hours, um, depending on how many cases. But generally speaking, we have, you know, a dozen new cases a day on average. And they can be, you know, one slide or a hundred slides and everything in Mm -hmm. between. And they can be Mm -hmm. different time points or one giant case or multiple small cases and, you know, complicated or not complicated, but, you know, challenging. So I'll spend several hours doing consult cases, which under normal circumstances would be the fellow previewing cases the day before and then bringing the cases to me. And we sit together in a multi-headed scope. And go through the cases, talk about whatever decide you know whatever the issue, diagnostic issues are, and decide if we need any to do any special stains or anything, order stains or decide what block to get and then order stains since cases don't always come with a block or unstained slides. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. as you know, the process having done it, so we yeah. spend you know several hours going through the cases writing stuff up, moving them along as best we can. We either make diagnoses and then I'll, they'll be ready to go, or we'll have to do something additional to them, stains or whatever. Then those cases will get transcribed by our administrative assistant. And then I'll usually, <laughs> this is sort of a boring typical day, but I'll sit at my desk, try to eat some lunch <laughs> while I'm doing my paperwork at the computer. So it's a very yeah. sort of a very sad little situation that I, <laughs> no. I, eat, I eat at my desk some leftovers. I think stand. it's very
0: similar to primary care physicians and people. When you think about them having to dictate all their charts, I guess it's yeah. not that different, yeah, right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So,
1: so I work on the computer, you know, trying to edit cases, eat some lunch, and then depending on how long that takes me, it will get me into the afternoon where we do a quality assurance conference. Typically two o'clock in the afternoon, we'll do a conference and everybody will show whatever cases they need to show, in-house cases, confirming cases, consult cases, new cases, leftovers, follow-ups. And so we do a Mm -hmm. conference. It it typically lasts an hour. It can run an hour and a half, depending on if all the different GYN fellows and faculty members need to show cases and how complicated cases are. Mm -hmm. So at low end, a half an hour, that would be a very short day, a short conference. Worst case scenario, two hours, typically an hour doing QA conference, you know, cases, and then depending on if I'm showing cases, I will then be maybe editing them up again, adding whatever we decided at QA conference into my reports, or I might be ordering more stains, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll try to sign out whatever cases I can. And then the next thing I know is sort of the day is gone. So (laughs) that's sort of a typical, typical day when I'm on service, which can be two or three days of the week will be like that. Yeah. And then the other times I'll try to do whatever else I might have. Um, I'll have some manuscripts I might be working on with a, a colleague, a fellow or a colleague I might be editing something. I might be um, doing some journal review re- reviews for a couple journals that I'm on the editorial board. Uh, odds and ends like that, you know, things that come through email, a manuscript with a colleague that I'm going to edit. Mm-hmm. And, and things related to that
0: recording podcasts yeah you know, this, is my, this
1: mm-hmm. is my first actually so that, that <laughs> has not been a routine for me at all there's other collaborative things that are you know like outside with other groups where i might be involved in some project that's a collaborative thing where there might be some kind of academic work to do with a manuscript or something like that.
0: Yeah, full days, and I totally agree, you look up and days over, Yeah, and uh, you were lucky if you've eaten, so yeah. that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Finally, to, and to tread carefully into this water, and you can divulge as much as you want to or not, as a woman who has risen to the rank of full professor, you are in a small cohort, even in the world of pathology. Various causes for attrition along the way have been implicated, and speaking from personal experience, I can attest that working for less money in academics than compared to, say, community practice with the pressure to produce can be daunting. Can you talk, as much as you're comfortable, about what it was like to be a woman in pathology while you were coming up through the ranks? Were there others around you who shared your experience? You said you're an introvert. Did you ever feel pressure to hide parts of yourself from your colleagues?
1: So this is a sort of deep and complicated uh, topic.
0: But, yeah. And you can go as superficial or deep Yeah. As you want. But yeah. I,
1: I can, I can try to, you know, address it at least to some degree. So I guess I can, I guess I can frame this a little bit, you know, so when I was in medical school from 82 to 86, and mm-hmm. I was at the university of Chicago. And at that time, my class, there was like, it was a class of 104 and there were 24 women. So That, that was different from what it is these days, where I think some classes have more than 50% women. Mm -hmm. So back then it was, you know, we were a small subset of the whole class. But I don't know that I thought too much about that, actually. I mean, it just was what it was, you know, and I never really, you know, dwelled on it too much.
0: And you certainly had an older sister who had maybe yeah. you know kind of been, become a, and so maybe it was something that you didn't really think was outside what you were yeah gonna do. Yeah. yeah so I didn't yeah.
1: really think oh my gosh you know I'm in this little minority and um you know mm-hmm. there's hardly any women around or whatever I didn't really think about it that much and and I guess I never got any messaging that, you know, there was anything odd or, or anything negative about, you know, just pursuing whatever I was interested in. I, I didn't really get affected that way. But I mean, there was a small percentage of women in my class that was somewhat, somewhat noticeable, I think. I think that was lower than what might have been average at that time. I don't hmm. know the statistics, but I think the University mm-hmm. of Chicago had a, had a little bit of a smaller percentage of women in its classes for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know why. So, but then when I went into the program here at Hopkins, pathology training. Interestingly, my intern class in pathology was, there were six of us. They typically took six residents. And in my group, there were five women and one guy. Hey, hey. So yeah. And just hey. that year, it just happened to be, you know, the, previous, the year ahead of me, I think had five guys and one woman. Mm. So mm-hmm. it was, each year was a little fluky in terms of proportions, but generally speaking, there were a fair number of women in the training program but in surgical pathology, there were four attendings and there was only one woman, but and so it was a small group, but one woman. So there was a woman. And so there was a little bit of, you know, there was a you know person there who could be a potential role model doing diagnostic surgical pathology at Johns Hopkins, right? Right. When I went to Memorial, there were very few female attendings, actually. Okay. In fact, there was one in cytopathology and one who I don't know I think she might have been a researcher so the surgical pathology faculty actually when I was at Memorial there were no women one mm-hmm. side of pathologists no women on the faculty and then mm-hmm. my fellowship year there at Memorial there were th- there I think there were el- 10 of us or 11 of us and three three women mm-hmm. so again a, sm- a small percentage but I never really thought much about it in terms of you know feeling like there's so few women and there's something really wrong with this i just i don't know i think i was probably overwhelmed with work and i didn't feel like i was treated in any different way but i i sort of wasn't treated in any way in some regard if if i maybe i should explain that a little bit you know i Mm -hmm. there was there was very little mentoring actually and i don't know if anybody else got any mentoring or it was just like there was lots of work and you know if you wanted to do projects you had to kind of pursue it or whether people were being encouraged to do projects. And I wasn't, I I, I never really had a sense of that because there was a lot of work and it was hard to do any projects. So, but but nobody really approached me in any way. And I didn't know how to go about seeking mentoring. Okay. Um, So I I felt I was just sort of floating through doing a lot of work, learning a lot. And then even during the search path year at Hopkins, obviously was very intense. I mean, You were on call every other week back then for the, you know, 26 weeks out of the year, you signed out every day for six months, surgical cases, and it was very intense. And and so I didn't really get mentored either then and, you know, was readily accepted into the fellowship when, had a good experience in the fellowship. Um, there were some other female faculty in the in the division at that. By the time I became a, a fellow, there were two women that were had a laboratory and a clinical duties on the faculty and GYN path. So I think there was uh, exposure to, to women who were successful academically because I of my they were they were they had been in training with me. Had, uh, one one had been training with me the same year and one was two years ahead of me. And they had gone through the program and then ended up doing postdocs in molecular work and then had been recruited by Dr. Kerman into the laboratory. And that was Laura Hendrick-Ellenson and Kathy Cho. And they were on yeah. the faculty then. And so there were these you know, female academicians with molecular training, doing clinical work, very talented, duly talented individuals that were in the division, you know. So there yeah. was exposure to to female scientists and you know diagnosticians there in as a when I was a fellow and they were obviously former trainees and colleagues of mine. So,
0: so that's a good example. It's kind of like having your big sister too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like-
1: yeah. Since then, though, they both ended up going, you know, to other places, mm-hmm. and then I I ended up being the only uh, female faculty member in our GYN Path division. It's an issue that's pr- trying to get addressed, and you know, it would be nice if we had. You know, more female faculty in, in our division. Sure.
0: So it's a, it speaks well for your expertise and your um, dedication that um, you have been so successful.
1: Yeah. I think, so I guess I you know, probably is yeah. worth pointing out since, since you didn't mention some other things before that I sort of forgot to touch on, but I know from we, some of the junior um, faculty around here, women, the issues I've had it easier in some regards, I would say, because, um, I don't have children that are a huge issue for how female faculty juggle work and life, you know, and you obviously are very well acquainted with that issue my dogs, you know, are, are much easier to deal with than, than children.
0: They cost less money. They do cost money and they're not cheap. They probably still wake you up in the morning though. So we have that in yes. common, right? And, yeah, and,
1: yes. and if they get sick overnight, which happens, you know, once in a while, you do have, you do have a bad night, you know, but there's no comparison, yeah. you know, children, children yeah. require um, so much um, time, energy, money, and it's a real challenge for people. So I haven't had that that struggle, obviously, of, of managing children. So it's a sort of a an advantage, if you will, that has made my life easier, if you want to, you know, describe it that way. It's,
0: well, it certainly gives you more control over your own schedule, yeah. and it's just it's just a challenging time to be a parent, I think. Yeah, um, I, I,
1: Clearly, yeah. that's it's yeah. challenging under normal circumstances. Clearly, yeah. and so yeah. this is just you know magnified everything to such an Haven't extreme it? that I yeah. think I think some of the younger women are actually um, feeling a lot of stress, are very worried yeah. because it's such a challenge, right? To
0: yeah, to yeah. deal
1: with this this crazy time. I, I, I described yeah. for you my normal day, and what I meant yeah. what I meant to include there is that you know now with this pandemic situation, obviously we're not doing. Yeah our sign outs at a directly at a multi-headed or double-headed scope. We're doing everything, yes. you know, virtually by zoom. So that's been a modification. The rest of the days are pretty similar, except that yes. there's no contact and it's really, yes. it's made things, you know, a little um, suboptimal, right? Because yes. it's just not the same, you know? No, um, So I though, totally
0: agree. It's been a I, little, I miss, yeah, yeah.
1: It's just been a little hardship, you know, for me, but yeah. that's just, you know, the interaction with the trainees is suboptimal.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting time. It uh, forces one to think outside the box. At least that's the way I'm choosing to look at it. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, there could be some good things that come out of this new ways to do yeah. things. You know, I mean, yeah. the fact that, like, for example, whether we continue to do some kind of a virtual, have the virtual capability to do quality assurance conference where yes. someone who may be working off site for some reason or not available could still tune in to a quality assurance conference. And then mm-hmm. you could get multiple opinions from people on difficult cases instead of only exactly. the person who
0: happens to be in-house who can look at it with you. Exactly. And I've noticed sometimes it's good to use it as a triage function, right? Like if you're if you're in the early stages of working up a difficult case, you can show a few slides on a virtual format and just get input about additional testing or sections or something to look at. And then if that person says, I'd really like to look at it under my microscope, say they're going to be in later in the week, then you could already have gone through the four steps that you need to do before they want to look at it at their own microscope. You know, So I think it's just being more plastic in, in terms of our brain waves, because I love glass slides and I love consensus conference. But I think, like you said, if anything good comes of this, it'll be that there's more flexibility, there's more diversity of opinions, also promoting digital learning and figuring out innovative ways to teach trainees, pathology, like figuring out how to do virtual things. I think, I think it just took any trends that were happening and just like shoved them forward a decade, whether or not we wanted to or not, but we're figuring it out, aren't we? I
1: think it's interesting that we may have some positive things coming out of this, even though a lot of it is very depressing. You
0: know, it's very depressing. Yeah, it is. But we have to, I mean, I don't want to be Pollyanna over here, but trying to figure out something um, positive to say yes. is a good thing. Yes, I agree.
1: I agree. Because there's been <laughs> yeah. a lot of sad news in the last there few months, been. you know. There has been.
0: Yeah. So I really appreciate you doing this with me, Biggie. And I've told you before, but sometimes your voice plays in my head, which I know you've said kind of freaks you out. It's, but um, it's a little disturbing. Sh- I worry about you when you say that. <laughs> Well, if I'm crazy, then we're all crazy. But yeah. I mean it in a good way in the sense that when I tell trainees to listen to the voice in your head where it's it's asking you, like, are you sure or something like that, your attention to detail, anyone who's ever trained with you will say that your attention to detail and your dedication to getting the right answer and the best answer for your patient is paramount and the documents you write up about using evidence to support your diagnoses and the macros we used at Johns Hopkins taught me to teach in pattern recognition. And it was just such a lovely experience to be your trainee. So I really appreciate you doing this. And I've been gluing together multiple shows to release my GYN pathology podcast. But this one I think is going to stand alone. It's going to be the biggie show. You're just going to have your own show. Uh-oh. And if Kerman and uh, Dr. Bang ever get around uh, to it, you all can all have your own shows. Yeah, but for well, now, that's that sounds- another the one.
1: That sounds yeah. uh, interesting. Yeah. So I, I truly am still fundamentally an introvert. So it makes me a little yeah. nervous to be like having done this thing, and this thing might be out there. Um, just you know, yeah, not, yeah.
0: Not, not, I'm a, a very
1: much behind the scenes kind of person, as you as you probably
0: you know can tell. Yeah, but now everyone will get to know what it's like to hear hear you talk about your experiences, and I think that's good.
1: So I think yeah. it's yeah. all clean, G-rated. Um, G-rated. But, I, exactly. but I'll say, you know, I appreciate that you feel like whatever happened over the microscope during your training was valuable because mm. I, since I don't have kids and my dogs just refuse to listen to me when I talk about pathology things.
0: I'll read your Merck slides. They, slide they me just don't sure. want to, yeah. they don't
1: want to have anything to do with it. I mean, they've, you know, seen some PowerPoint <laughs> presentations and they're in some PowerPoint <laughs> presentations. Actually. I know. As anybody who's seen any of my lectures knows, I try to work my dogs in there because it's entertainment uh-huh. for me. But yeah. the dogs don't listen to me, so I have to. You know, I view you, you guys, meaning all the former and current and future trainees, as as kind of like children for me. And in, in that, whatever I might be able to impart to you um, from my experiences, you want to give whatever wisdoms, pearls of information, um, approaches. You want to pass that on to your children. All things about how to practice GYN pathology to the to you guys as trainees, and that's sort of. One of my motivations, you know, is that I try to impart things across the microscope that you don't get out of a textbook. You know, as, as wonderful yeah. as the textbook might be, it yeah. does not teach you how to do the
0: job. Yeah. Um, and how to do it well. It's, yeah, it, it's, yeah. Well,
1: I, I've told people it's like an apprenticeship. You know, the fellowship is yeah. like an apprenticeship and you're learning how to do it and you won't get those things out of textbooks and you won't get them out of articles and, and no, yeah. no other way than across the scope. Hearing the person's th- thought process and seeing how they look at the slides, I think, is, yeah. is what I try to impart, because that's what I learned from people who taught me, you know?
0: You see someone who's doing it well, and you try to figure out what they're doing and do that too. Yeah. And it just, so anything yeah.
1: good I can impart to you as an approach that helps in your practice, that's valuable, that sort of gives me pleasure to see people adopting things that they find helpful and helping them do a good job
0: yeah well that's a great way to end it i i really appreciate you doing this with me Biggie. thank you it's been great fun thanks so much yeah thank you